Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. I'm super intrigued by your story, and I was just wondering if we can start off by basically you just sort of giving an overview of who you are, a little bit of your story. I know there's there's a lot there. Sure. I want to say I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have this chat. I love talking about recovery. I really admire the work that you're doing and the reasons Thank that you. you're doing it for. I listened to a handful of episodes of the podcast and really connected to what your message is and the guests that you had. I feel like it's a very humanistic look at things and um, yes. that's my style too. So um, so I'm Casey. Um, part, a big part of my story is kind of this fluidity that exists within me. There's fluidity in my uh, identity, in my sexual identity, in my gender identity, and that's a big part of my story. And that's why I lead with that. Uh, I work in the substance use disorder field. I work at a treatment center um, that it takes a harm reduction approach, and that is something in my own recovery in the last few years that's very new to me. Right and. I really connect with that and wanted to talk a little bit about that today. My experience with substances started uh, at a really pivotal time in my life. I was a young teenager and felt this kind of pull towards the fluidity that I mentioned, but didn't really know where to go with it. I identified, um, I remember being very young and identifying with David Bowie, just the way that mm. he looked and identified himself. And there was a ambiguity, yeah. uh, ambiguity to him. Um, but there wasn't a lot of support and there wasn't uh, really any role models for me in my immediate life. And But that, that conflict that I felt was kind of an underlying um, would later become the underlying thing. And I feel like there was a point where I really disconnected from my authentic self and I stopped searching for my identity and tried to live into what um, I felt like other people kind of wanted me to identify like and then when i was um about 14 i had i remember being attracted to everyone not literally everyone but women men uh there mm -hmm. was something about uh androgyny even that i found very attractive and felt yeah. like it represented who i was and when i was about 14 and i was just beginning puberty and my body and my brain weren't really matching up um i was assaulted sexually and i had a relationship with a much older man and I feel like that's where the real um, kind of disconnection happened for me. And it wasn't long after that, that I started to experiment with substances. First it was alcohol and then there was cannabis. And I grew mm -hmm. up in South Florida at a time where the opioid epidemic was really ramping up. So there were plenty of opiates for a time. Um, I experimented with ecstasy and GHB and methamphetamine and um, throughout kind of the underlying were always alcohol and benzodiazepines. I feel like they really kind of settled my my brain and my mind and my thinking. That's a little bit of background. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. And I was going to say, so you talk about um, sort of harm reduction is more of a new thing that you've come to understand. And I'd love to, you know, talk about that because it's interesting, especially coming from um, a world where I didn't understand, you know, the first thing about addiction, 
all I knew is that it's either all or nothing. It's either you're an alcoholic or you're a drug user or, oh, 12 step, you know, abstinent, nothing you haven't used for 30 years. And this idea of reducing harm, uh, I know is really controversial, which is funny because a lot of the things we do in every single day, uh, everyday life is, is harm reduction. And it's, I think, a really fascinating concept that I've come to see is so important. Can you sort of talk about your, I know maybe you don't practice harm reduction, but what you do for your job in San Diego and if you use harm reduction in sort of everyday life there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I started to um, navigate the world of recovery, I was pushed into uh, 12-step programs and from day one. And I'll say there was a time where it was probably the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous that may have saved my life. Yeah. Um, but but they also put me in a, a lot of dangerous situations, too. And now I'm able to kind of go back and look at that. And because such a huge part of my own story is shame, um, I realize how dangerous shame can be. And 12 step programs are very shame based, maybe not so much in the steps themselves, but in a lot of the structure uh, mm -hmm. and rigidity of the program, the you know need to identify as an alcoholic or an addict and always you know leading with this is how many days I have as though this number of days or this complete abstinence is the end all. And when that is lost, uh, there is this feeling of needing to um, come to terms with that. And so when I was younger in my early 20s, I started navigating, I went to treatment for the first time. And like, th that was the option that was given to me. And I understand now that there was a time uh, before I, there really wasn't treatment, there wasn't anything. And so uh, that's all there was. And something like the big book was written. And, um, and, and that's kind of all it was the only option that we had. And now, you know, it's been 90 years since that book was written. And a lot of um, things have been introduced. There's a lot of new research. There's a lot of, um, you know, new experiences and things that we can take advantage of. And so when I walk into, uh, it's been a while, but when I walk into a 12 step meeting and someone has the big book in their hand and they're pointing to, you know, mm -hmm. on page 17, it says this, I want to say, well, what about, you know, all of this stuff that's come about uh, in the last 90 years? And, and the way that those meetings adhere to that remind me of like organized religion and how, you know, the fundamentalists are pointing to something in the Bible and not taking into account the last 2000 years. And for me, harm reduction is um, at its essence, just truly, uh, you know, can mean a thousand different things. But for me, in spirit, it's really the ability to see somebody and accept them for completely who they are to meet them where they're at, uh, not where I want them to be. And, you know, that's also the essence of any caring, nurturing relationship. And so if somebody were to say, you know, I've been sober uh, for two days instead of, or, or I was sober for two days and then I used instead of saying, well, why didn't you uh, continue to stay sober for longer? It's it's uh, placing the value in that experience for them. Like, how was that two days for you? What does that two days mean right. for you? And acknowledging that that could be the most monumentous thing that's ever happened to them is that. And celebrating it, right? Because like, I think you raise a really important point talking about shame. And I, I think that that is, that's what's killed so many people, right? Like, it, it's so scary to me. And my best friend passed away. She was ashamed because she was at a place in her life where uh, we all know she went to treatment. And we all thought, including myself, oh, you're, you're cured, it's done. 
I don't blame her for not coming forward and being like, well, hey, you know, I messed up. I'm not in a good place. Right. And shame is just it's it, it stinks, like is all I can say. And I think it's just so important that we rally around people, meet them where they're at and be able to sort of show support. So I think shame is something again, that's really what the stigma is. It's we need to be able to rally around these people and support them as much as possible. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, your experience with Life Ring? I know you were talking about kind of the different 12 step programs. How did you find Life Ring? Um, what does that mean to you? What is your connection with Life Ring now? So I'll say, I want to say first that my goal on a day-to-day -day basis at work is to create spaces that are completely free of shame. And so where people can come in, be their authentic self, reconnect to their authentic self and not have to feel uh, like they need to reach uh, for someone else's values. They can identify what their own values are and we can focus with each individual person on what that looks like for them. Um, when I, my, my last time in treatment uh, was about two and a half years ago and uh Again, it was, um, you know, we were asked the question often, are you going to meetings? Do you have a sponsor? Uh, and I, I already known that that wasn't uh, for me. And, and I thought this kind of shame that I was feeling drove me to the more uncomfortable I felt in the 12 step dynamic. I, but originally I thought I need to go, I need to find the most rigid group of men. It has to be men and they have to be super rigid and because this isn't working for me. So I need like this militant kind of style. So I thought I needed more structure. And so I went to this, this men's group of AA and um, it was so uncomfortable. And the pivotal moment for me uh, was everything was online at this time. It was during the pandemic. And this group was so rigid and so structured that every, every week at one of the meetings, there was a speaker and they were very adherent to what their rules were. And the rules were that the person who was speaking needed to dress up. They needed to wear a suit and tie. Uh, it was a pandemic, thing was online. And here's this guy speaking and he's in his garage and he is just sweating bullets the entire oh, wow. time, oh, uh, but, but could not because of the rules, take off his jacket or his oh, tie. Oh my God. And I and just this sat was on there. Zoom. This was like virtual. This wasn't in person. Yeah, this was on Zoom. Wow. And, and that's when things started to make sense for me and that it wasn't structure, the ultimate and structure that I needed. It was it was kind of the the opposite of that. And uh, luckily, I was in treatment at the time. And in my treatment center, um, there was a life ring meeting once a week. And they didn't really, they didn't really talk about it. Um, but they said it was there as an option. And I showed up and I sat there and there's only like six people. Uh, life ring meetings tend to be a little bit smaller, more intimate. Um, crosstalk is not only allowed, but it's encouraged. A lot of 12-step programs, there is no crosstalk. I can tell a story about that in a minute. Um, and I sat there and I just opened up and I was vulnerable and I cried. And people uh, accepted that and they they looked at me and they said, you know, me too, Casey. I've been through that experience. And there was that validation that I, I never found. And, and for me in 12-step meetings, it was always this very inauthentic. I was trying to rehearse a monologue and use all the great cliches that everyone uses. And it just never uh, felt in line. It, it helped a little bit for a while, but it wasn't like truly uh, where it was. And so Life Ring is kind of the antithesis of uh, AA and it's built on uh, the principle, there's 3S principle, which is uh, sobriety, secularity. So there's no God talk. Um, and so instead of um, it being... God focused. Uh, it, it's a, I, I consider myself a spiritual person. I have a strong faith. I don't really like that mixed in with my recovery. So it satisfied that. And then instead of uh, showing up and admitting that I'm powerless or, um, you know, having to identify by any certain label, addict, alcoholic, uh, there's this concept that we can feel empowered in our own recovery. And that's really in our own recovery. That's really the foundation 
of what life ring is allowing each person to identify their own personal recovery plan what recovery looks like for them and feeling empowered rather than uh, i'm powerless right because i never really connected with the statement yeah. i'm powerless but when i started to say things like i feel empowered uh then i i really and there's no hierarchical structure uh there are meetings life ring meetings i'm in where i couldn't tell you how many days uh everybody mm -hmm. has and and that doesn't matter it's just you know us sharing group yeah. of people sharing our experience, supporting each other, being there for one another. Because um, if I were to go to an AA meeting today, uh, when someone raises their hand and says, I've been clean and sober for 30 years, I would still attach a value to that. And uh, any group of, of 12 step people will acknowledge that there are people in 12 step programs that have been clean and sober for 30 years and are like complete douchebags and maybe prey <laughs> on like the vulnerable people in the group. Yeah. And so there really for me isn't a value in that number. And when I'm at work, I ask, I ask everyone, not how many days do you have, but I'll ask, you know, how, when did your recovery journey start? Tell us about your recovery journey because of the person who, um, and I work with uh, a lot of men, a lot of gay men, um, whose drug of choice is methamphetamine. There's a, a, a lot there just to that particular dynamic. It's a really, really tough, substance to recover from. And so we have to be really patient and really meet um, folks where they're at. And so I like to hear about somebody's entire recovery journey versus just the number of days that they have. No, I think I think that that's really important, right? Because, and this is sort of where the shame comes in. If you have two days, you don't feel as important, or if you relapse, recurrence of use, whatever you want to call it, you don't feel as important as someone who has had 30 years. And I think it's just important for people to know, meet where you're at, any, any effort that you can put in to make yourself be in a better place, I think is sort of the most important thing. Um, and you were mentioning the sort of crosstalk at like the 12 step program um, versus how it's really encouraged in life. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, the, the basis is really, um, you know, a, a group of folks in recovery that's recovery journey look completely different and they're there to support each other. And so there's a lot of um, sharing their own experiences and and somebody may um, share, hey, I'm going through something and say, I'd like some feedback from the group, um, open it up to feedback and other group members can, um, you know, talk about how they got through something similar. And with that pressure being uh, relieved, it, it creates a very kind of cohesive environment. And I'll share another experience that I had. I went to my journey of coming out, I identify as a bisexual man. And my journey of coming out really coincided with my recovery journey. And in the beginning, I was exploring different meetings. And I went to this meeting that was uh, another online Zoom meeting. And it was generally uh, a gay meeting. And I went to the meeting and I shared really, really vulnerably. I cried a little bit. And I talked about this journey I had um, not being accepted as a bisexual man. I wasn't accepted by uh, the heterosexual community and then expected to be accepted by the gay community and multiple times was not even to the point where I was completely invalidated uh, as a bisexual and by a, a mental health professional. I talk about that uh, on the other podcast that you listen to. And so I shared this story uh, at this AA meeting and um, was just really, really vulnerable. And then uh, once I was done sharing, it moved on to the next person and on to the next person and on to the next person. And because there was no crosstalk, really what I needed in that moment was somebody to unmute and be like, Casey, 
Right. Me too. I hear you. I feel you. I get you. I'm here to receive you and support you. Uh, and I got none of that. And I sat there for like the next 40 minutes as the next person shared and the next person shared and said, this just doesn't, this isn't working for me. Um, and it was the next day uh, in a meeting uh, in a different recovery organization where Crosstalk was allowed where I shared that story. And then somebody um, was able to actually the entire group was able to receive that message and support me. And that's when that was the moment for me that it clicked that my recovery didn't didn't look that way and that I could be responsible for for doing what worked for me. Yeah, I think so. It's really interesting that you mentioned sort of that crosstalk thing. So I attended, I think it was an open um, AA meeting, I'm going to say six months ago, never been to one, only knew what I knew in movies and what was sort of talked about, did a little bit of research, but didn't really know what to expect. Um, but it was open and I attended. And it was fascinating. Each person would pour their heart out. And I'm like, God bless that they have the vulnerability and the courage to do this. And as you said, they would finish, you know, they're crying, whatever. Next person, and I was sort of thinking like, my God, no one's going to come off of mute. Like, is someone going to say, like, I support you. So like I messaged them separately being like, and because I, I didn't want to interrupt. And I, I then realized that crosstalk is not encouraged is basically sort of tell your story, whatever. And I just, I gave so much kudos to all these people who could just sort of pour their heart out. And, and if I was ever in that position, I, I know myself, I wouldn't be able to go all out and be like, Hey, this is my story without someone telling me it's going to be okay. And sort of support. And it's interesting for a lot of people that works. And that's why I think it's so important for people to realize, right? There's so many different paths to recovery and no ways the right way, but I'm sort of in your lane where that wouldn't be able to connect and click with me and something where people would support you. That's much more in my lane. So I love that. The, I, the dynamic of online meetings is interesting in that in person, um, you know, especially when it comes to like, A, there's the opportunity to talk to that person after the meeting. Um, online kind of eliminates that. And what was yeah. interesting about my experience was because this was uh, a, an LGBT specific meeting, they actually had the chat function turned off because people tended to come into the meeting wow. and say really derogatory things in the chat. And wow. so there was no option. Nobody could chat oh me. Nobody God, could send me a message. Wow. So it really limited my option. I just felt like um, completely alone. But having the opportunity to express that support uh, during a meeting, I think can be really beneficial. And when there's a person who needs extra support, sometimes that meeting can kind of uh, become a little bit more about them. Um, and it, it really, I think, levels a playing field and allows for everybody to get the support that they need on any given specific day. Agreed. No, that that's fantastic. And so you work at a treatment center in San Diego. Um, and you said you were dealing with a lot of um, clients with methamphetamine addictions. Um, what does sort of recovery look like? And again, I know recovery is probably different for every single person, um, which I think is the most important thing that we talk about. But like, what what do you recommend? What is sort of the starting beginning stage? Do you guys use medication assisted treatment therapy? What does that sort of look like? So we have with our program, um, therapy is offered uh, to every client. We're an outpatient program. Um, therapy is offered to every client. Clients are coming. Um, they, they, most of our clients have gone through uh, a longer residential program um, or some kind of more intense, intense treatment before um, they get to us. And um, we offer about, I want to say, 15 to 20 different groups per week. We require that they come to three groups. Some of our groups are in person. Some of them are online. We have clients who um, are using some kind of medication-assisted treatment. We have clients who are at different journeys in their recovery. Um, the interesting thing about methamphetamine addiction is that our methamphetamine recovery 
is clients can can identify that methamphetamine is is very dangerous for them, um, gotten them in, in a lot of trouble, but maybe alcohol uh, isn't uh, the, the same level of, mm-hmm. and and so we can support them through um, you know identifying what their their harmful substances are and maybe some others aren't. Um, so we're very open to that, um, and that's really interesting. And um, something here. <clears throat> This, this was really interesting to me. My experience in treatment, we, um, I went to a co-ed treatment center and um, we were given this, this workbook to work out of and we had this assignment. They called it the first step. I don't think it really came exactly from 12 step, but it, it was similar in structure. And we had to kind of timeline our uh, substance use history and then share it openly with a group. And it was a section in that workbook that was like sexual history. And when they handed us the workbook, that section was just completely X'd out. And I, you know, I thought to myself, thinking of my own story, that was like 95% of it. Like, how can I, you know, fully recover if I can't address these things and talk about it. And then there were other times where I would bring it up in group and it was always shut down. It was, you know, we don't, we don't talk about that here. Um, and I, I kind of understand their reasoning. They, they didn't have, uh, trained professionals or, uh, the groups for co-ed there was, um, trauma. But what I find interesting about the treatment center that I'm working at is we have a program specifically that deals with, um, it's called DSHR, which is Discovering Sexual Health and Recovery. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I chose to work there, um, especially for um, our population and our community that we work with. And the link between uh, sexual behavior and methamphetamine use is very, very strong. And if, if that were someone's experience and they go through the process of treatment and are not able to talk about um, and get support and deal with those things, their chances of um, sustained, you know, maintain, the chances of maintaining their, their recovery are not uh, very good. And so that's something that we do that's a little bit different. And so I facilitate a lot of discussions that have to do with shame around those things that have to do um, with just the behaviors in general. And I know that that is um, really appreciated. And sometimes we'll have a client come in and be uh sit through their first group and be like oh my god i can't believe we're talking about this i've never been able to talk about this stuff in my life and it usually doesn't take long for them to start to open up and feel safe and comfortable and um the the way to take care of cure that shame is really through discussing it through connecting with other people and realizing that they have some of the same experiences we do and um and that can only happen in you know through discussion and so the more of that that we do the better off we are yeah, I agree. It's like it, it is really interesting to me how, you know, obviously at the end of the day, addiction is is because of, you know, usually a trauma, whether childhood or something, a mental health illness. It doesn't just happen, right? Because like, there's a falsehood that people who just pick up drugs, like you're automatically addicted. And that's obviously not the case. So um, I do think it's so unfortunate that there's other programs where you can't, you know, you're limited to talk about what you want to talk about. And at the end of the day, that might be the thing that that has caused the addiction and, and whatever. So I think that that's really important. Um, can you sort of talk about your personal recovery journey? Um, I know everyone's recovery journey is so different. What made you want to start on the recovery path? Was it a particular moment? Was it uh, over a couple of weeks? Was it family members, friends who convinced you? Like what what sort of happened? What was your awakening, I'll call it? Oh, wow. Uh, I had a lot of awakenings over the years. Um, I remember being in uh, like high school and realizing that my use of substances was different than my friends. Like there would come a point in a night where they would stop and I would never stop. I would keep going, keep going, keep going. I remember at a New Year's Eve party, I want to say it was a junior or senior in high school, my friends and I chipped in for 
like a bag of cocaine and um, <clears throat> New Year's happened and they're like, okay, that was fun and went to sleep. And for me, I was up the entire night uh, licking the bag, crawling around on the floor. And um, that's really kind of how my substance use went for long periods of time. It was always more and more and more and more and more yeah. um, because I was so conflicted in my identity, I really see that that was the the coping mechanism that I chose and made me not have to address, um, you know, this lack of connection that I was feeling. And so for me, there was a mental health journey that uh, coincided with all of my substance use. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, in my early 20s. That diagnosis was questioned uh, a couple years ago. And um, over the years, um, that that having that diagnosis allowed me to be prescribed medication that I really like, specifically benzodiazepines. And so I never questioned that diagnosis. But when I looked at my substance use history, and there were hospitalizations, uh, and there were suicide attempts, and those are the two things that really fall in line with a bipolar diagnosis. When I was speaking to doctors and psychiatrists, I really left out a lot of my behavior with substances and just told mm -hmm. them about these other things that were happening. So it wasn't until I was 30 years old where a psychiatrist said, Casey, you know, all of these things that have happened throughout your life are very in line with substance use and you have this diagnosis, but I, I don't know that this diagnosis is accurate. And the only way that we can find that out uh, is to start to wean you off medication. Do you want to do that? And I said, yes, absolutely. And that was about two and a half years ago, weaned off about five medications I was on and haven't, I, I felt amazing ever since. And now I can look back and see where all of my symptoms, the hospitalizations, the suicidality being um, suicide attempts um, were really, really strongly related to the substance use and um, the rest kind of remains to be to be seen. So yeah, no, no, that's interesting. And, and another thing that you mentioned um, that I have only come to realize in the past year is very common is um, even with someone who's dealing with addiction goes to speak to a therapist the addiction is rarely talked about. It's all sort of the other things. Um, can can you sort of talk about from a personal experience, why was that? Was it sort of you, you felt comfortable talking about the other kind of aspects of it and it came to a substance use, you felt ashamed of it? What was the reason that you weren't able to fully divulge that information to someone? I, I think that there uh, there's a certain amount of like self-awareness that's required. And for that, there there has to be, um, I, I'll use this example that I, I didn't hear. There's a, a podcast that I've been listening to. It's called Two Bi Men. Okay. Um, I, I didn't hear bisexual men having conversations about male bisexuality until I was in my late 30s. And I mm. needed to hear those conversations from people who were like me. Um just to know who I was. And so first I had to have this understanding of who I was and the self-awareness um, before I could then bring everything to a mental health professional or a therapist. And then that therapist uh, that I bring those things to needs to really be trained uh, in a lot of different areas. So uh, gender identity, sexual identity, substance use, um, all of those things. And so when I first, my first experience connecting with a therapist to try to process this and sort it out, I remember I was in a treatment center, I was in my early 20s, and the therapist was self-described, he just described himself as very gay. And here, you know, I have these conflicted feelings. I'm attracted to men and women and everyone. And I thought to myself, this is great. Finally, I have somebody that I can process these feelings with. Well, mm -hmm. you know, this person uh, said to me, you know, Casey, uh, men can't be bisexual. And here's an article 
that backs oh that God. up and sent me home uh, with this research that had been done. And th there are articles in existence. There is research that has been done. Um, it's very outdated, of course. Um, and so that's what I had to believe. So instead of coming out and, and accepting and finding out who I was, it did the opposite. It just compounded the trauma that I already experienced. And so I say that I went back into the closet, like violently back into the closet. Uh, and it would be another 10 years before I connected and found my community. And so finding and connecting to that community is super important. Finding a mental health professional that's well-rounded. I really liked the, the podcast that I was on. Her audience is therapists that feel like they don't have uh, enough training in substance mm -hmm. use. And, and so um, she created a podcast for, her name is Betsy Byler. She created a podcast for therapists who feel like they don't have enough training in substance to hear people's stories with substance use so that they can better uh, help those clients. And I love that, that goal. I agree. No, that's fantastic. Um, no, I was going to say, Casey, this has been really great. What, what else do you want uh, the audience to know either about you or a story if they're suffering any sort of pieces of advice for them? I, you know, I would say there's a lot of really good organizations out there. Um, there's Smart Recovery and there's Life Ring and there's Refuge Recovery. Uh, there are, you know, plenty of 12-step organizations and, um, you know, our field is headed in the direction uh, of, of meeting folks where they're at and of harm reduction. And, um, you know, if, if you try something and it doesn't fit and it doesn't feel comfortable, um, continue to reach out, continue to try to connect. Um, I, you know, I've when I'm asked to give like a simple definition of addiction, I like to say that it's that the the disconnection um, from our authentic self. And that looks like a lot of different reasons for a lot of different people. A lot of times it's trauma, it's trauma at a very young age. And so recovery then becomes this reconnection, this reestablishing our authentic connection to ourselves and um, never stop seeking that. Um, and that can look all different kinds of ways for all different kinds of people. This process of recovery should feel empowering. It should feel good. It should feel like reconnecting and keep searching and looking for that. I hear a lot of people that are doing something for their recovery and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this and it, it, I feel uncomfortable, but I got to keep doing it because this person's telling me, <laughs> um, you know, keep doing it. I got to get a sponsor because that's what they're telling me to do. I got to go to these meetings because that's what they're telling me to do. And you know, my message is it doesn't, it doesn't have to look like that. No, that's fantastic. Well, Casey, you've been a real pleasure. So thank you so much for your words of wisdom and for everything that you're doing for um, all the different communities out there. So just really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.